you know, the, the amount of actual physical labor um, that went into each dress. Like, I don't know if you've seen how a 70s domestic machine works, but your, your arm is going back and forth for hours. And so I sort of, you know, tried to make it fun for myself by I'd stand there and turn it into like a zen-like movement meditation kind of thing. Um, if anyone saw me, that thing was insane. You heard right. I might have a story for you today. I'm Matt Levinson, and I first met Kayleen Milner when I was working with the UN Refugee Agency a few years ago. Sadly, the project fell over at the time, but I was struck by the way she effortlessly navigated different settings, respectfully interacting with knitters' guilds and other craftspeople, all this openness and good humour, but it was also really great to be a fly on the wall to see how she poked and pushed the edges of what was a growing creative collaboration with the illustrator Neil Gaiman. But if I'd known more about what she's done and where she's come from, I probably wouldn't have been so surprised. Kayleen was an Estedford kid who now plays drums in a post-punk band. She achieved the ultimate entree to Sydney's fashion world, but now makes hand-knitted band jumpers. She was school captain, Dean's Merit List, New South Wales Premier's Travelling Scholarship winner. She's even been awarded a novelty oversized uh, check. She's a high achiever, let's just say that. And she's a deep thinker about the business models that sit behind creative work. I've interviewed stacks of people over the years, but I never ask all those nosy questions, you know, of the people that are actually around me and the people that I'm coming into contact with. When you think about it, I think that's probably true for all of us, that there are all these great people around us that do these amazing things and we never really dig into why or even sometimes what they've done to get there. With this podcast, I'm going to get to know some of those great people better. Kayleen, it is so great that you're part of this. Thank you Thank so you. much for agreeing to doing it. Thank you for having me. Um, I can't believe you dug up all that background. <laughs> that's what I do. Um, Kayleen, <laughs> let's just start at the start. You grew up in Mount Kembla, out the back of Wollongong, backing onto the bush. What was life like as a kid? It was pretty idyllic, really. Um, I went to a primary school that was really small. You knew everyone. Um, especially it was really lovely, the, um, growing up by the bush, um, it really sort of fostered a sense of escapism, I think. And I, I really crave living amongst trees, which I don't currently here in, uh, grungy Rockdale. Um, but yeah, it was a really lovely upbringing there. Right through the 90s and early 2000s, you pop up in the Illawarra Mercury for your various, you know, placements in the Wollongong Estedford. Was music a passion back then or was it something like were your parents pushing you to do this stuff or what, what was driving you? It was definitely something that um, was inevitable because I had a musical family and it was just sort of um, – me and my brothers, we all, you know, enrolled in piano lessons and then took up a brass instrument as well because that's what my parents did. Um, and it did become a passion once, um, yeah, I had to come to that in my own time once I was about 13, 14. And I actually, it was partly the social aspect of it that helped it become my passion, meeting other 
young teenagers who were equally as nerdy and loved creating music. Um, I was in a brass band at that time for, for listeners. Um, very cool. But yeah, it was, it was so much fun um, just running around. Like, to be honest, I, I loved playing music, but what I enjoyed even more was like that 15 minute break in between the rehearsal where you could just run around with your friends. Um, yeah. I, I did theatre when I was a kid at school and I have that same feeling. I love that moment when you had a bit of free time, but with, <laughs> with this group that you're bonding with, there's a real camaraderie from having to do rehearsals and all yeah, that kind of stuff I, together. I, I did love the music, but what I loved was what the opportunities it gave me as much as the music itself. But I think as I matured as a musician um, and I came to appreciate like the composers and the the art of performing more, yeah, I, I grew an appreciation of playing, but up until probably my early to mid-teens, it was just, you know, something that you do every Friday night without fail. We're sitting in your office studio, front room of your house, surrounded by, you know, the products of your amazing knitwear brand, Wawa, and we're going to talk about that quite a bit in a while. But what gave you the bug for fashion right at the start? You know, where did that come from? Was that, does that go back to school years as well? I guess it does. Um I always struggled to find clothing that I liked um, during high school. Like, I mean, you're, you're really exploring your own identity and um, I was obsessed with music, um, not the music I was playing. You know, I, as I said, I was playing classical trumpet and brass band sort of music. Um, but what I really loved was punk music and like the two worlds couldn't be further apart. So, you know, when you're trying to express your identity and find like-minded friends. The way you do that is um, by wearing a band t-shirt. So I guess there was that aspect. And also um, I used to go op shopping and find all these sort of psychedelic materials, which were admittedly like bedspreads and um, curtains. And to me, that was like sort of my way of capturing the psychedelic music that I was also obsessed with. Like I got really into late 60s music. And so I would cut up those sheets and make simple shift dresses and things like that. So yeah, in hindsight, I was, I was interested in clothing and fashion as a way of, um, expressing myself. But at that time I would never have imagined going into fashion as a career. I always thought it would be either, um, psychiatry, um, purely based on my love of Fraser Crane or, um, or music. It's so interesting. I, you know, I had Lee Tran Lam, the food writer on the show, on this podcast last time. And she also talked about that experience, you know, back then of you're walking down the street and you see someone wearing a band t-shirt that you get really into and you just immediately know that they're your people. And I, we had that same experience when I walked in the door, <laughs> you know, earlier and you're wearing this Arthur Russell t-shirt that I was, you know, like pulling through, should I put that T-shirt on and I'm going I out. so wish you had worn the same T-shirt as me today. That would have been a lovely moment. It would have been magical. <laughs> you were just saying that you, um, you you tossed around psych and music. I mean, in fact, you went to Wollongong Uni and studied psych for a year and then went off to the con to study music before going to um, Sydney Fashion Institute at TAFE Sydney. What was going on in that journey for you? I think like most late teens who have been pressured to decide on a career path. Like I, I didn't know what I actually wanted to do. Um, so those first few years, like I said, thought I wanted to be a radio psychiatrist. Um, so I enrolled in psychology. That was the 
you know, the stepping stone to that. But for all my electives, I was choosing music subjects rather than the behavioural health sciences subjects. Um, So I thought that was probably a sign that I wasn't enrolled in the right university course. So that's when I applied for the Conservatorium of Music, which I actually also applied for when I was in high school, but I had applied as a classical trumpeter and I I could have gone down that path, but I decided performing wasn't really for me. Um, I really enjoyed it, but I just thought um, having that pressure to not make mistakes because that's what classical music is very much the performance style is about not making mistakes um just would have been such a nerve-wracking career um I mean if you do enough of it and I was playing a lot at the time you you stop thinking about it but yeah I, I guess I'm not a natural performer in that sense um so I applied to do musicology which is music research and got into that and did it for the best part of two years and what made you make the move finally to go and study fashion? I mean, Sydney Fashion Institute, uh, you know, incredibly prestigious school. So many people have gone through that who've gone on to much greater things. But it must have felt like, you know, there must have been a part of you that was like, oh, I, I moved on from psych, I moved on from music. Should I just <laughs> stick with it for a while? Or, you know, like was, was, was that something that was playing on your mind or was it like – you know, I, I have to do this, you know, I have to yeah, go and study it, this. I mean, it was a really naive decision. Um, I think my idea of what a fashion designer's life might be like, um, I'd pictured it was a really sort of serene and creative life and it couldn't be further from the truth. Um, I imagined, you know, there was just a lot of contemplation being a designer, whereas the design industry is just, it's hectic. Um, it's chasing your tail all the time, not sleeping, or at least, most of the fashion industry is like that. Um, Wawa is definitely not like that, thank goodness. Um, but we'll get to that later. So, yeah, I imagined a different lifestyle, basically. I loved researching music, but I saw the sort of careers at the end of it and um, the academic world. Um, it was really a, a really supportive group of academics, but um, and it was, it was a really nice environment, but I didn't see an exciting career for me there. What was it like arriving at the Fashion Institute? Oh, it was wild. Like I had no idea how to put a portfolio together. I remember going down to my local library at Brighton La Sands and borrowing a book like how to uh, draw a fashion design, something like <laughs> prescriptive <laughs> like that. I was like, okay, you, you draw a figure and then you draw some clothes on it. And so I put together a portfolio. So, uh, yeah, totally naive. Um but, I mean, I, I was creative in high school. So, I mean, there was there was a little bit of something there that I could um, channel into producing some creative vision. Uh, but, yeah, I was, I was pretty fresh and naive. And I think there was a sense of, well, I can't keep changing degrees, so I better stick with this. Um, but as it turned out, um, it was nothing like what I expected, but I really loved it. I've heard it's just insanely competitive and and sort of a driven process. Really know. driven. Um, I mean, it is. there's a lot of creativity, but you've also got to be super organised and um, give up your social life for a few years. Um, it was just a really intense course, but I really thrived in that, um, I in mean, that environment. You absolutely. I mean, you, you graduated top of your class when you came out in 2011. 
And, you know, when you look at predecessors, you know, the likes of Akira Isagawa, Romance Was Born, um, Nicky Zimmerman, you know, like the big names of Australian fashion all went through that that course. It must have been such an entree to the fashion world. And, you know, I've read that your grad show was inspired by the yearning for nature. And I know you kind of touched on that when we're talking about growing up in Mount Kembla. Um, that's actually it's something that really... Uh, grabbed me when I read that the last couple of years of being in lockdown and being stuck at home I've felt this great hunger to just be out in nature be out high for me it's hiking so you know I wanted to go down to Tassie or go into the Blue Mountains or you know any of these places that seem like a million miles away because you're stuck in Sydney for you um you know, I've read it was the poems of Coleridge and Miyazaki's um, Studio Gaburi films. You know, and that that way that they come out. What can you tell me about the clothes that you that you made in that first show? Because that that oh, feels wow. really. I don't even important. remember saying that, but it sounds like something I might have said. Um, particularly the Miyazaki reference. I can't believe I referenced Coleridge. Um, keep in mind, this was like twelve years ago. <laughs> Ta- point taken. <laughs> but yeah, I appreciate the research. Um, what was the question again? Um, Just tell me about the, the clothes. The clothes, yeah. So my approach was very, I mean, I wanted to be very hands-on so that I could create something that no one else could create. It was such an expression of, um, you know, my my skills and feelings and, like, the emotions I was trying to evoke and I really wanted that to come out through the clothes. And so my way of creating something unique was by learning artisanal crafts like leather carving and traditional smocking um, and hand knitting. And so the, the clothes, I mean, I look back on the, at them and I cringe a little bit, but at the time I was really proud of them and I still am, but um, I, I think that's just part of looking back on your own body of work. But yeah, they're, they're incredibly detailed. I mean, yeah, the work really is, detailed. you know, um, as you said, working with leather, working with all these different materials, it's like a really big body of work because it's, you know, a lot, a lot of the time you'll see one of these details appear in, in a sort of, in a piece, in a project of fashion. Whereas yours, it's almost like you're exploding to show all these different <laughs> techniques. Well, that's what these. you do as a student. Like, I, I think I... I wrote something uh, really uh, ambitious at the time for it. Like, I think this is the only time in my life I've ever written New Year's resolutions. But coming into that final year of studying fashion, I was like, I want to produce a collection that's worthy of an international runway, which <laughs> is kind of, I don't know. Again, I'm cringing looking back on it, but I was so driven to show what I could do because, I mean, that's, the eyes are on you, I guess, at that time. Um, and you need that ambition, right? Like that ambition to do something bigger, you know, to to push past what, what is acceptable. And sometimes that feels cringy when you look back at it. Yeah. But, but that ambition <laughs> is really important if you're going to do some new thing. Yeah, for sure. You, I said at the start that you got a novelty oversized check. You got that for, you know, for winning this, um, you know, for, for coming out top as um, as a student at the Fashion Institute, you that sent you off to an internship with Diane von Furstenberg. That must have felt like, you know, a career highlight. You're on the rise. You're going to be a future fashion star. But it was a really demoralising experience landing in New York, wasn't it? Uh, well, I mean, it took me a, a few months for that to set in, the demoralising aspect. Um, I guess I had been studying nonstop and you know, in control of my creative output and 
you know, exploring new things and, you know, on a real high. And I'd just shown at Australian Fashion Week. And literally, I think it was the day or two days after I flew to New York, it was like a bit of bit of culture shock in a way because I was like, oh, gosh, I'm here now. Now what is my purpose? Why am I here? Um, so I did start an internship at Diane von Furstenberg. And I don't know, maybe I'm just not cut out for working in an environment with a team of designers in the industry. I'm not sure because I, I love working with other people, but I do – I've, I've never really worked as part of a team. <laughs> um, but I guess it's like partly because as an intern, you go in at the very bottom level, which is fine. Um, I did get something out of it by observing what was going on. But I also observed um, really, uh, I don't know, uh, like a lot of the people working there just seemed so stressed and tired and had no work-life balance. And my job was to stay back all these uh, crazy hours just in case the designer I was assigned to needed something photocopying. And I was like, well, this isn't what I signed up for. Um, I eventually they realized that, you know, I had the skills to do some designing. So I, I did get to finally put that to use. Um, and it was kind of nice to see my input end up on the runways but I also, if I'm being honest, saw like aspects of my graduate collection end up in the runway as well. So, uh, which is just how the design industry works, a large part of it. There's a lot of plagiarism that goes on or, I mean, more referencing in that case, but. Um, it feels like, you know, at least from my perspective, that sense of disillusionment in New York. I mean, you also did some other interesting stuff, did some, worked on a trend spotting business there in the fashion industry. Um and it I loved like, that. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. I, and it feels like some of that stuff, you know, even if it was uh, not the greatest experience, not what you were hoping for at the moment, feeds into the kind of um, that growing interest in the business model and in in different ways of doing things in fashion and, and in music as well. And I think that's something we're going to tease out as we go. You got back here in 2013 and started making clothes under your own name um, for the first time after having you know, the previous collection was under this Sturm and Drag name. Given what came later, I'm really interested in this moment because you partnered or, or worked really closely with an influencer to make a dress that, you know, went out substantial, it was named for her and got an element of virality at that time, like seemed to like go wild on blogs and so on. Can you talk me through that experience? Yeah, well, it's funny that you say that it was, uh, I worked closely with an influencer and named after her. The The truth of it is, is it was a piece that I designed independently while I was in fashion school. And then a PR company was like, let's call it the insert name here dress and call it a collaboration. And it was a collaboration in as much as she wore the garment and had photos in it. Um, so it wasn't a collaboration, not, not how I would describe a collaboration, but um yeah, it was a piece that I designed in my graduate range and then got a bit of, um, well, quite a lot of attention once she wore it. Um, and, uh, yeah, she she really got behind the brand, so I was really thankful for that. And then people wanted this garment and I'm like, oh, it's a one-off hand-knitted piece, but also people want it. I need to produce it somehow. Um, so I then started to do my research and reach out to knitwear manufacturers and no one wanted to touch it. It was an ambitious design. It was this cable knit halter neck backless dress with a really interesting construction and um, being the stubborn and determined uh, person that 
I can be at times. Uh, I was like, no, I'm not not going to be defeated by all the people saying no. So I reached out to a, um, the Machine Knitters Guild, actually, and they put me in touch with a lady named Helga. She was a really lovely lady who was originally from Germany and um, she was an absolute whiz with um, domestic knitting machines. And so I, I told her, like, I've got this design and I need to produce it. And she's like, the skills you need to produce this, uh, it takes years to learn. I was like, okay, cool. I've got a week. Um, so we sat down and she just, you know, taught me everything, like a crash course in how to um, create them myself on a domestic 70s knitting machine. So for the next few months, I was just in my room working to create those. Um, it's such an intersection of total opposites. You know, you've got this you know, PR driven thing that's, you know, going out on blog posting, going somewhat viral on the internet. And at the same time, you're learning this, you know, arcane skill yeah. and, you know, like having to bash these things out. Does, does that, is that jarring? Is that, you know? Oh, for sure. But I mean, that's how a lot of the industry is, I guess. Um, I mean, smoke and mirrors, but yeah, I, I really love that process of learning how to create it myself and, I think, I mean, that was, I guess, an introduction to knitwear manufacturing rather than hand. I mean, you can manufacture with hand knitting, but um, my introduction to machine knit manufacturing, even though it was, like you said, an arcane way of doing it, um, the, the theory behind it is somewhat similar to the more modern knitwear machines that we use now. What did it teach you about the business of fashion, that experience? It taught me that um, a lot of designs are not viable financially. Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> I yep. spent – well, it also taught me to value um, garments differently because I, I was making it myself and, um, you know, the, the amount of actual physical labour um, that went into each dress. Like I don't know if you've seen how a 70s domestic machine works, but your, your arm is going back and forth for hours and so I sort of, you know – tried to make it fun for myself by I'd stand there and turn it into like a Zen-like movement meditation kind of thing. Um, if anyone saw me, they'd think I was insane, but that was what I was doing at the time. And yeah, so, I mean, if they were selling for a substantial amount, but if you broke it down to an hourly rate, it's, yeah, it's not viable. You were teaching right through this period back at fashion school and you won a scholarship um, to to travel the world and see how fashion startups in some key cities were approaching the business. So, you know, going to Hong Kong, Antwerp, LA and other cities. Had this been in your mind for a while, this kind of thinking about the underpinning, you know, business models, the foundational business for making fashion work? Yeah, I mean, I had already launched Wawa before I left for that trip. Um, but having been a teacher at the fashion design studio, um, and having having been a student myself, I was really aware of the fact that um, students are really only, I mean, this isn't the case now actually, but when I was a student, there was only one sort of design business you could launch. And like you mentioned, the Zimmermans and the Akiras and stuff, um, these incredible designers where they do seasonal collections, um, several, probably four collections a year these days, um, and a full product offering and you'd wholesale and like continually be chasing your tail and 
Yeah, that's sort of what we were taught a fashion brand was. And as a young designer who had something to say or had an urge to create a product, um, that's it's just not viable. And that's what I tried to do with my first label. Like I didn't know what else to do. I knew I didn't want to work for a brand, but um, so I thought I would start my own label. But, you know, I had such a relatively small amount of funding to do that. And considering how little money I had, it's, it's kind of cool to see what I achieved in hindsight. But yeah, uh, it had no longevity. And I was witnessing this a lot, these amazing uh, students coming out of fashion school, uh, getting press and attention like I had, and then launching a brand, doing one collection and then fading away because you can't follow that up. What did you learn on tour? Well, in terms of knitwear, I'm going to bring it back to knitwear because that's where my head's at at the moment, um, that there's, there's definitely different ways to approach, uh, production and running a brand and that you don't have to do a full product offering, like I was told. And a few of the examples that really brought that home for me was actually both of them were in England. Um, I met up with like a tech startup who were a knitwear tech startup and they, um, their goal was to sort of hack the technology that's used to pr- produce knitwear so that it was as cost effective to produce one garment as it is to do a thousand. So that makes customization possible. Um, and it also, their, their long-term goal was to reduce waste um, so that you didn't have to produce these huge minimum order quantities because the setup for knitwear is there's a lot of work that goes into each design. So as a result, the manufacturers might say, well, you need to produce a minimum 300 or 500 units. So it was really interesting to see a tech startup um, interrupting the way fashion was produced. And another example was I met with um, a designer in Hull. Um, I actually went to Hull just to meet up with a friend that I'd met through Wawa, an illustrator. Um, But I I tried to make it relevant to the study tour because you've got to, you know... (laughs) Got to make it work yeah, for the grant. Um, but he happened to have a friend who uh, was a knitwear designer and she ran a small label and it was stocked in Topshop. I think Topshop would support young, oh, not young, I should say, emerging designers at that point. Um, and she was doing production by teaching uh, people how to use domestic machines and going out to um, just uh, people working in their homes on domestic machines and utilising those skills. So I, th- I thought that was really inspiring that she could um, have a, a functioning, legitimate, profitable brand by doing it that way and releasing styles just as they were ready to go. So you've been teaching, I mean, you had been teaching up until then, come back and you've been teaching since then. You mentioned just a moment ago that, you know, the students coming through now maybe have a bit more business now than maybe they did once they upon a time. Do. Are you seeing some of these kind of learnings from tech? or from other spaces filter through to the kind of business models that people are, you know, setting up around their, you know, student and graduate programs? Yeah. I think there's so much more transparency around what actually goes on in a fashion label than there used to be as a result of social media. So um, these fashion students are seeing, I mean, someone like me, for example, and seeing that it is one person operating it. You don't need to have a huge... Uh, warehouse necessarily or yeah just they're realizing that there is more than one way to launch a brand Um, so I think they're just um, the students are just really savvy as well with 
again, social media. Uh, and so they're realizing that they don't have to be reliant on, um, you know, the, the traditional structures and uh, what we were taught really. Wawa is something that's come up quite a few times in this conversation. We're sitting in a room surrounded by amazing jumpers. Um, where did it start? Um, so I stopped my namesake brand um, a year or two after launching it because I had to stop and question why I was actually doing it. I think I was just sort of, you know, doing it because I didn't know what else to do, if I'm being honest. But I learned so much during that time. And about a year later, I still had an urge to have my own brand. And so I, I've had this idea rumbling around in the back of my brain for ages. Um, I can't really remember an exact moment now, but I, I know the inspiration came somewhat from seeing a picture of Jay Mascus from Dinosaur Jr. wearing a hand-knitted sweater that his mum had made him of his high school punk band, Deep Wound. And so I was like, oh, punk bands, knitwear. I, I think there's something there. Um, and I told a few people my idea to interpret punk graphics when I say that, like album artwork, posters, um, and turn that into wearable garments, but that have been knitted. And you did say before hand knitted garments. I have done some hand knitted garments, but most of them are machine knitted. I just want to be totally transparent there. Um, but yeah, I, I just loved the idea of those two clashing cultures. Um, and like we touched on earlier, like wearing your influences on your sleeve, quite literally. Um, for me, I've always, I mean, every day I'm wearing a different band t-shirt pretty much. That's you know, just my go-to. Yeah, my 13-year-old uh, daughter is really down on me wearing band T-shirts. She's <laughs> like, you know, Dad, can't you find some? Is you it know. really uncool? Yeah, it is, oh, it is really uncool. Yeah, and I haven't realised that yet. <laughs> yeah, the, my musical references are also deeply uncool. But I love that feeling that you used to be able to really kind of, you just knew people were on your wavelength when you saw they were wearing a t-shirt. But a lot of those t-shirts now, you weirdly see a lot of those bands in fast fashion shops. Um, You don't see Arthur Russell t-shirts in fast fashion shops. Not yet, no. But you probably see a Ramones t-shirt or something. Yeah, all the time. Do you feel like your jumpers are kind of hitting a similar mark? You know, it's a, there's there's a real connection to it. There's something special about it, right? Well, that's what I wanted to do. I mean, t-shirts, um, I mean, I love my band t-shirts, but they are, you know, a result of fast fashion. Even, um, you know, most of the t-shirts that you'd buy have been mass produced. Um, they're, they're so cheap to make. Um, and... I mean, if we, we got really deep into the sustainable side of uh, the T-shirt manufacturing business, like I'd, pr- I'd probably have a meltdown really because, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's a very complex system. Um, They're made as cheap as possible, right, yeah. aren't they? Merch yeah. is the idea is you buy something cheap at a gig. Um, and, I mean, I get it and I appreciate that side of it, but having my background of uh, fashion design and um, – you know, my appreciation for sustainability and artisanal crafts and what goes into it, that I didn't have a desire to make more band T-shirts. I wanted to make something with longevity, uh, something that was sustainably produced, something, I mean, I I say this now in hindsight, um, it might be giving it a little bit more more credit (laughs) than what's due because at the time I was just like sick knitwear and punk bands. But I did want to do something that was – a more, I guess, I don't want to say high end, but like something that I knew um, 
wouldn't be thrown away. 100%. These jumpers couldn't be further in a way from, you know, that fashion influencer thing we were talking about before. Then it were. Um, but, but in a way, um, you know, you are working with these people who have enormous Im- audiences around the globe, you know, the likes of Courtney Barnett, Kim Gordon, Dinosaur Jr. even, which is amazing to me that, you know, like close the circle and they came back to you to make a jumper with you. I know you're really um, deliberate about the business of what you're doing and, and really think through this stuff. Can you unpack what's happening in terms of the business model behind this and how Wawa works in that sense? I guess it's kind of twofold because I um, I wanted to completely um, reject the idea of seasonal collections because to me if you release something one season, it's then usually gets discounted, it's out of season, it's done, um, and it devalues the clothing. Um, so instead I want to do create pieces that I really stand behind and it's really just a curation of artists and bands I love in the medium of knitwear. It, it, when I really boil it down to its essence. Um, so there's that reason. Um, but also I do want to operate primarily by myself. Um, but in collaboration with artists, like, but I, I want to run the business myself. I don't know if it's a control freak thing or, um, I don't think it's that. I, I think I just like the flexibility it gives me. And so that's the other reason, flexibility. Um, Is that something that, you know, I grew up with indie and punk and DIY culture. Is that something that comes from that, from growing up with people running indie labels and, I mean, you know, zines yeah. and all that kind of thing, just, you know, doing it themselves and having complete control and not having to, you know, rely on some of that other stuff that happens around being part of a much bigger conglomerate or whatever whatever it is I think it's partly that like I used to love hearing about um like minor threat and punk bands like that that would have these days where they would just like pack and send their own records and form the cardboard mailers themselves and so there's a bit of that DIY approach that probably comes from my appreciation of the punk scene but if I'm being really honest it um it's probably more <laughs> to do with I struggled with insomnia for years and the thought of having to wake up and do a nine-to-five job um, just sounds like hell to me and I've never had that. I mean, teaching, I did have to rock up on time and I was I was punctual. Um, but, yeah, it's more just this desire for flexibility and being my own boss, I guess. You, The way you talked about, you know, being a collection of your favourite bands as jumpers, kind of in a way um, sells it a bit short, I think. Like this isn't just a fan project. This is um, really deeply interesting in terms of your collaboration. And I and I hinted at that in my intro. I was talking about being a fly on the wall in your co- um, conversations with Neil Gaiman on our ill-fated project that <laughs> didn't go anywhere, sadly. But, you know, seeing the way that you were able to tease out a collaboration there um, was was really um, instructive for me. And, you know, I'm sitting here behind me, there's um, the jumper that you've made with Kayleen Wilson, Whiskey. And she, for, for my view, is like one of the more interesting artists in the country at the moment. She's really individual and doing something that is, no one else could do it. And you've made this piece of work with her. 
Can you tell me how that project came about? Because that feels like, I mean, there are a couple of other projects that you've done that are like pushing the envelope a bit. And, um, but that one feels really special. Can you tell me about it? That one was really special to me. Like I'd come across her artwork years before and I mean, we share a first name, which I'd never met another Kayleen before. So there was that that jumped out at me. But I was like, who, who is this incredible artist who's like creating these scenes with pop stars and rock and roll icons dancing in Outback Australia? I'm like, it was just wild. And I just fell in love with her artwork. And um, yeah, when I approached her about it, um, I mean, it took a little bit of effort to find the right person to get in touch. She's uh, she's working uh, in Indulkana, um, so I couldn't just, you know, swing by the studio. Um, but, yeah, I I just loved her artwork so much. So it's – I guess every collaboration comes from a really genuine place. Um, I have to I, – I spend a lot of time working with it, so I have to really stand by it. And especially with knitwear, when you know you have to produce X amount – of garments and also the fact that I don't want to create waste. I need to be a hundred percent confident that it's going to, oh, uh, how should I say? I don't know. Beyond just myself, it needs to, other people need to feel excited about it and some sort of special connection to it. And I think, well, I, I was confident that I wasn't the only person out there that would just absolutely love to represent Kayleen Whiskey's artwork. She's got a real strong following, especially in the last year or two. Um, but working with her artwork was a real honor. Like I was given her back catalog basically and given free reign to create whatever I wanted, but there's so many technical challenges with knitwear and the color limitations. So I, I spent months just composing these different, uh, design ideas based on what was technically possible. So there's the technical aspect and then you've got to stand back and also look good. Um, yeah, I think I got a little off track there, but (laughs) It's so fascinating to hear the thinking that goes into that. And I know the, you know, um, being part of that conversation with Neil Gaiman and thinking about, you know, and like an illustration might be amazing. It might be even iconic, but if you can't represent it with the limitations of the seam of the knit, the knit, Mm. then you can't make a jumper out of it. Right. Yeah. And I love these artists and respect their work and, I want to do it justice in like, if they're trusting me with it, I I need to do it justice. You're gearing up to get on the road, which must be quite amazing after this couple of years of um, COVID lockdown to tour the new record from your band, Loose Fit. Um, If Loose Fit was around for a bit before COVID, it's been around, you know, the EP came out well before that. This record, Social Graces, feels like it must be a child of this weird era What's the past couple of years been like for you? In terms of the band or just life generally? I think life generally and the band, you know, okay. like you're producing a record that is like a, you know, all these work. It's I mean, this is another collaboration, right, I guess. And, yeah, you know, yeah. the, uh, a lot of your knitwear is in collaboration, but it feels a lot more overt, some of that knitwear, whereas this is when you put out a record, that's a really personal thing, right? Mm. It's, it's That's just you and your band members and um, mates. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of credit has to go to our singer, Anna Langdon, um, who writes all the lyrics herself. Um, And I think she does a really fantastic job of capturing a mood and a a zeitgeist and all these weird feelings. Um, I'm I'm not the best at 
expressing myself often. So I'm really thankful to be behind the drums and <laughs> she's, she's terrific at it. Um, but yeah, I think the, the album really captured um, a lot of the social awkwardness um, that, you know, if, if you didn't already have it, like COVID really brought it out, like, especially coming out of lockdowns, like going to a party or a gig and being at arm's length from people and not knowing how to interact. So that there's do some of that. Do we shake hands? Do yeah, we hug? Ex- exactly. You know? um, but yeah, credit goes to Anna for capturing that in her lyrics. But yeah, it is very collaborative, especially the way we write. Um, I know a lot of other bands I've been in, there'll be like sort of a primary uh, songwriting leader, for lack of a better term, and they will bring their idea to the band. Um but we really don't work like that. We get in a room and we just start, I might start making a drum beat and then Richard, the bass player will join in and then Max will join in and then Anna will just start, you know, singing gibberish sometimes that'll turn into lyrics or she'll go to her diaries and then, you know, pull something from that. And they really do evolve really um, organically, the songs. So it is really collaborative and um, yeah, we worked really hard on it. Like in hindsight, but like, it was three three years in the making, I guess. We started recording at the end of 2019, but, you know, the songs had been formed before that, a lot of them anyway. I think we've got to right now uh, have a bit of a shout-out to Max who is, you know, your partner and bandmate and yes. is also out going for a walk with your little boy to create a nice <laughs> quiet space here. So big thanks for that. Um, your first recording as a band was a a take on, well, this is just basically you and Anna, right? A take on Chris Isaac's Wicked Game, (laughs) which I think is just so um, telling in a way. Um, It exemplifies this sort of sense of a lot of the stuff that you do straddles all these different worlds and it's kind of weird to think that the music that you make is loose fit, you would take that kind of really mellifluous um, song. There are so many hints of things that I love in the music. You know, there are, you know, bits of I, mean, I love Delta 5 and the au pairs and Bush Tetras and they're kind of really obviously you know things that you guys I've saw a Bush Tetras <laughs> box set on your on your record shelf before um and the Happy Mondays I'm that was an loose- accidental reference the, yeah, right. the name Loose Fit um Max came up with that and then we got to the first rehearsal and, and uh Richard's like is is that a Happy Mondays reference and we're like oh didn't even think of that but yeah we we all love the band luckily there's a real 80s sort of feel to it um and I, like when I was listening to the new record I was just I kept on thinking about like why that was interesting and I feel like that moment around post punk um, and, you know, there's this intersection of post-punk and disco and hip-hop, but also fashion and art intersecting, I mean, particularly in places like New York, but in a whole bunch of places, there was this amazing intersection where all those art forms seem to be part of the same art form. Is that something that chimes for you? Because you work across all these mediums. and Yeah, and the other members of the band do too. Um, Richard is like a a producer for an arts show on the ABC. So he's really aware of, you know, what's going on in the art world. And um, Anna is an artist and fashion designer and Max writes a heap of other interesting music and, you know, he's been bought into the fashion world against his choice by dating me. Um, so, yeah, it, it it checks out, I guess. Sure. The cliche for someone 
playing in a punk band or a post-punk band and running a fashion house and doing all this stuff that you do would be that you were, you'd been in Marrickville or Zetland or, you know, somewhere like that. We're down here in Rockdale in Sydney South. You've lived around this area for quite a while. You were in Arncliffe at some point and is that something that is, you know, like – is that a deliberate thing or you just just home <laughs> the rent, here? The rent's cheaper. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's something, that's a real thing for everyone, Sydney, it's, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, we we want to do these projects that take up a lot of space. Like I need to have a room to work uh, work in for my fashion label. We need a room for instruments. Um, we Like you mentioned, uh, we now have a six-month-old son. Um, you need space and Sydney is, you know, outrageously expensive so that's one of the reasons but I also just really like it out here that's a really excellent place to finish this conversation Kayleen it has been so great to talk to you before I let you go I just want to like run three rapid fire questions past you first up what's keeping you up at night my baby uh, <laughs> that seems so uh, obvious. Yeah, um, I'm actually sleeping pretty well. I mentioned I used to have insomnia and I'm sleeping really well these days, even though I have a six-month-old. Uh, but when it, when I am awake, it's usually because of him. I feel like when I, when I had my first child, it really taught me to take my sleep when I had an opportunity to get it. You know, they say uh, nap when your baby naps or sleep when your baby sleeps. But for me, it was work when your baby sleeps. So uh, that's the only way I managed to run a, a fashion label. Who else should I be speaking to? Um, I think it'd be really interesting to have a chat with Trent James Evans, who runs Passport Label. Okay, tell me uh, just a potted summary of why. Um, I think in a similar way to how Wawa is about like embracing counterculture, uh, his label, Passport, it's a skate brand, but it's all about, you know, skate culture and music and, yeah. Cool, it sounds perfect. Um, and what's giving you hope right now? Oh, that's, that's, that's a tough one because there are so many reasons not to have hope at the moment with, you know, with politics and climate change and everything. But um, I'm going to bring it back to the fashion industry, actually. Um, I felt a lot of hope um, when I found out a whole lot of fashion graduates um, from UTS were given uh, domestic knitting machines. And I, I feel like, you know, there's going to be a, a whole lot of designers coming out in the coming years who value sustainability, ethics, um, a slow fashion approach. So that gives me hope. I love that. Kayleen, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You can find Kayleen's new record with Loose Fit. It's called Social Graces. It's on their bandcamp, loosefit.bandcamp.com. And I reckon probably on all the other places where you listen to music as well. You can find Kayleen's incredible knits at wawaaustralia.com. This was produced and hosted by me, Matt Levinson. Thank you so much for listening. And for all the amazing feedback I've been getting on the first couple of episodes with Nick Robinson and Lee Tran Lam, if, you ha- if you're coming to this for the first time, I really highly recommend going back and having listened. They are both incredible people. And please let me know what you think. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Matt underscore Levinson. That's probably the best way to get to me. If you like what you've heard, subscribe and uh, give it a rating, you know, all the usual stuff. And who knows, might have, might have a story for you in the future. Thank you.